Good morning. You guys doing well? Yeah. Having a good summer? In the desert? Yes, yes, yes. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles or smartphones or tablets or whatever you got there, turn to Judges chapter 13. We'll look at that whole chapter here this morning. Braveheart is our current teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise, Whose Eyes Matter. As you're turning there, turn to the folks sitting around you and answer this question, what is absolutely the best thing about the Christian life? What is the best thing, absolutely the best thing about the Christian life? Real quick, do that with folks sitting around you, real quick. Okay, what did you guys come up with? What are some of the good... Forgiven? Okay, I like that. Forgiveness. What's that? Adoption. Adoption. Ooh, nice. Sobriety and sanity. Sobriety and sanity. Ooh. Security. Jesus. Peace. Peace. Hope. I heard hope back here. Yeah, those are all, all great, but they're not the best thing about the Christian life. Sorry. Because the best thing, I, I wrote it down right there on your notes, the best thing about the Christian life is discovering and enjoying the presence of God. See, all of those are a byproduct. All of those help to lead us to the most important thing in the Christian life is discovering and enjoying the presence of God. That is the essence of the Christian life. We have the presence of God. And uh, that's really important. We're gonna, today, we're gonna meet a couple who encounter the presence of God and their lives are never the same. Now, why is this so critical? Why is this so important? Because the more you hang out in the throne room of the powerful and personal king of the universe, the less, the less you're gonna be paralyzed with fear, the less uh, you're gonna be overwhelmed by hopelessness, the less you're gonna be eaten up with bitterness. In fact, the more you hang out in the throne room of the powerful and personal king of the universe, the more courageous, compassionate, and content you'll be more than ever before. That's where we're headed. I love this topic. It's my favorite topic of just really knowing and understanding the presence of God. So before we take a look at our text and unpack these notes, you'll notice that we're gonna, we'll read a verse and then we got some fill in the blanks and then we'll read a few more verses. We'll just kind of walk our way through the text. I, I love to study like this. If you've been with us, you know us here at Desert Breeze, we like to go through books of the Bible, and so we're currently going through the book of Judges. It's quite a study, to say the least, and so that's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we love you. We love your presence. We love um, coming together corporately and enjoying you and having you speak to us and continue to transform our lives. You loved us so much. Father, that you sent your son to rescue us and, res and reconcile us to you forever, giving us a life that is incomparable and indomitable. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that as we are here to today studying your word, we're not looking for life lessons as much as we want to encounter you, the only one that can satisfy our souls and liberate our lives and so we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us, God, for your glory and our indescribable and indestructible joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Take a look at this text. So we've been kind of working our way through this uh, book. We're at chapter 13, and we now come to the last major judge. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Stop there, we didn't get very far, but I need to give you some thoughts. Here's your next, uh, your first fill in the blank. Sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience or our personal standards or community standards, but is violating God's will revealed in God's word. Now why, why did I say that? That's a little overwhelming, that statement, but. But you'll notice, I've got this on your notes, the phrase, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We've seen that seven times throughout the book of Judges. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I wrote them down there for you. This is the last time, it appears, although there's a phrase that appears twice. It's part of the double ending of this book, which says the same thing, only in a different way. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Isn't that interesting? So it's just saying the same thing in a different way. We see that in, in Judges 17, 6, and then 21, 25. The whole book ends by summarizing it. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What they were doing was perfectly acceptable in their own eyes, in their own perspective. Now think about that. They thought that they were, hey, we're cool. We're cool with God. Everything's cool. And yet, uh, and yet in God's eyes, the behavior was wicked. Now it's interesting in our culture today, it is continually asserted innumerable, in innumerable forums and venues that only you can define what's right and wrong for you. That's kind of the American way. But common sense contradicts this, that idea. Even if we didn't have a Bible, if evil is only determined by our own eyes, how could we tell the Nazis that it was wrong to exterminate the Jews? Or let's take it to more current day, how could we tell ISIS or ISIL that it is wrong to kill all the infidels, we're the infidels, that disagree with your beliefs in the way of life, in your way of life in honor of Allah? How could we say that? See, if you call something crooked, anytime you say that, you ha there has to be a straight edge somewhere, so what's your straight edge? So what is the basis of your beliefs? What's the credibility of your creed? See, and we as, as Christians believe in the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. This is our rule of faith and practice. That's why we study it diligently. This is the plumb line for our lives. This is what we always come back to. Let me, let me go back to the statement here. So sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience. Why is that? Because you could have a seared conscience. You guys know what a seared conscience is? Psychopath? Does that sound familiar? Like uh, mass murderers and, and they feel good about it? Oh, I like killing people. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, because your conscience is seared. But what's interesting about a conscience, our conscience has to be consistently recalibrated with God's word. Because our conscience can either be hypersensitive or uh, undersensitive. It's kind of like a fire alarm. And as a firefighter went on calls, houses burned down, the fire alarm was intact, never went off. What's wrong with that picture? Well, it's, it's not sensitive enough. And so you can, your house can be burning down and, and the fire alarm's not going off. And so, so you can have the fact of guilt without the feelings. So you can, from, based on God's word, and yet, I, I don't feel bad about it. Well, it's wrong, it's still wrong. So you gotta always go back to the Bible. Or you can have the feelings, you can have the feelings without the fact. That's called false guilt. So you can feel bad about yourself, and yet you can't really put your finger on anything, and you really don't, you, you don't know what's wrong, you just feel troubled. And that's what guilt is, it's just troubled over what you've done, and you can't figure out what you've really done. So that can be a form of false guilt. So you gotta constantly come back to God's word, and that becomes the plumb line for us. So sin is not ultimately, does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience or our personal standards. Nancy and I have uh, some personal standards. We have a personal standard of, of abstinence. It's not what you think either. <laughs> what were you thinking? It's alcohol, abstinence from alcohol. Uh, and uh, because uh, believe me, if, if we didn't have abstinence from alcohol, it would be all I could do to keep her out of the bars on weekends. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm joking obviously, but we have a personal stance on alcohol. We have abstinence because we've seen so much destruction in our own lives in our family lives on both sides. And, and yet the Bible doesn't uh, teach abstinence. The Bible actually uh, doesn't forbid alcohol, but it does say, you know, uh, moderation, Proverbs 21, it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is unwise. So the Bible actually gives us some really good insight, but that's a personal standard, so I can't push my personal standard on you, I gotta go back to God's word, but that's a personal conviction of ours, and you certainly need to have personal convictions. Or, notice this, so sin does not ultimately consist of violating our conscience or our personal standards or community standards. Just recently, Supreme Court ruling of same-sex marriage. The Bible, uh, the, our, our culture, our community says, hey, have at it, and yet the Bible says, no, no, that's wrong. That's outside of God's love and wisdom for marriages. 
And so, but it is violating God's will revealed in God's word. And so that's the first thing that we see in this. Now let's continue reading. Verse two, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Stop there just for a minute. Let me give you some more fill in the blanks here. Uh, before we look at the fill in the blank though, uh, here's, here's five observations that we can learn from just these first uh, few verses. Here's the first one. They're on your notes, by the way. You'll notice here, did you notice something between verses one and two, no cry of repentance? This is really the first time. So, so here's the kind of the downward trend of the nation of Israel is it starts with complacency in their relationship with God. Complacency leads to compromise. Compromise leads to crisis. Crisis leads to crying out to God. And then what does God do? He sends a judge, a rescuer. But you don't see any crying out. No crying out. So if these people are going to be saved, it's not because they are seeking God, but because God is seeking them. Here's the second observation, is that this is the first time a judge is promised before birth. Pretty interesting. This gives us a little bit of a picture about a, a birth that's gonna happen about 1,200 years later. Pretty fascinating insight. And then the third observation is that this is a promise given to a barren woman who is nearing old age without kids. And this is ultimate devastation for women in these days. It was a symbol of hopelessness. Fourth observation is that we are never told her name. It's not like the writer doesn't know her name, but I think it's, I mean, it's actually brilliant of the writer and, and what's going on here for us to have a little insight into this. And it's really showing her obscurity and then number five observation is that she is not a God-seeking woman, otherwise she wouldn't have been told to stay away from unclean things in verse four that we just read. So here's the lesson. It's about salvation. It's absolutely wonderful. And, and it's very important for us to understand this, is that God brings his salvation to a people who are not crying out in repentance, who have no talents or gifts or righteousness to distinguish them from others, a people with no hope and no prospects in themselves. He brings salvation to them. Here's the point on your notes. Fill in the blank. God doesn't love us because we are lovable, but in order to make us lovable. I love that. That's the gospel. That's wonderful. God doesn't love us because we're lovable, but in order to make us lovable. God doesn't choose the righteous. He makes righteous those he chooses. God doesn't save the strong, but he makes strong those he saves. Um, and I, I struggled for years with this whole idea. When I had a good week, I felt like God loved me more. When I had a bad week, I felt like he loved me less. Or somehow I, you know, I better not go to church. I hear people say this all the time. I better not go to church because the walls will come in or the roof will fall down. Or you know, they say, well, that's based on this whole works righteousness idea that we, that is so much the default mode of our hearts and nothing can be further from the truth. When you've messed up, even more so should you run back into his arms of love and receive what you are desperately needing for your life. I gave you some verses there, Deuteronomy 7. 7 and 8 talk about the nation of Israel because he's just saying, hey, it wasn't because you guys are great people that I picked you. Romans 5, 6 to 11, when you go through the growing notes this next week, uh, read those verses. They're just really a wonderful, wonderful verses. And one of the verses one of, is one of my favorites is 5, 8, where it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still what? Sinners. Woo! There you go. You weren't lovable. That's not why he loves you. But while we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. Oh, my goodness. He died for us. He pursues us. And then in verse 10 of that uh, verse, it says this. Let me read it to you because it's just, I don't want to miss it. I've meditated on this a lot of times. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Isn't that crazy? Like if he did this while you were sinners, now that you're reconciled, now that you're his child, oh my goodness, 
You have the kingdom of God. You have all of heaven. So it's, uh, it's pretty profound stuff, and it's really important. So, so the only opinion in the universe that matters sees you as more valuable than anything you could ever dream or imagine, which means no matter who you are or what you've done or what has been done to you or how bad your circumstances are or how many mistakes you've made or how weak you feel, there is hope for you. And hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's confident, joyful expectation. It's not, I, I hope so. It's not wishful thinking. It's, I know so. That's the hope that the Bible gives us. And that hope will not be found by you turning over a new leaf, by you, to use the metaphor, getting pregnant in your barrenness out of your own strength. She, she didn't do that. She can't do that. It will be found by you receiving God's gift of grace. It's his choice of you. And immediately people say, well, what if, what if I don't know if he's chosen me? Do you want him? Yes, I do. I really do. Then he wanted you first. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. Okay, let's continue reading. So, oh my goodness, this story gets even better. The narrative, we're just barely scratching the surface here. So verses seven, uh, five through seven now. So, so she has this angel. By the way, the angel is, is the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not an angel of the Lord, but it's the angel of the Lord. So this is a Christophany. This is Jesus showing up here. And uh, so she's gonna tell her husband, so for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite, uh, to God from the womb and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband and she thought, and he thought that she had been drinking way too much and I mean, I, it's like, what? You said, you saw what? And he said, what? You're old. We, we can't have kids. And uh, he doesn't say that. He, and, and a man of God, so the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. So she's like right off the bat, she's overwhelmed by this experience. Notice this, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Stop there just for a minute. Let me give you some more uh, fill in the blanks because this really gives us some really great insight as it relates to uh, how, we, how to read the Bible. Did you know most, I, I think really most Americans probably don't read the Bible right and a lot of what's being taught out there is that we look at the Bible almost as a book that tells us what we must do to make ourselves right with God and nothing could be further from the truth. It's not about what we must do, but it's really about what he has done to make us right with him. That makes all the difference in the world in how you read it. Here's the point. The Bible isn't basically about me and what I must do, but it is basically about God and what he has done. And that's found in where? Where's that found in that text? Right there in verse five. He shall begin to save Israel. Did you notice that? Begin to save Israel. Only begin? Yes, because it will be finished in Christ. It's looking ahead to our ultimate salvation in Christ. Like I said, this is very similar to Jesus' birth announcement found in Luke 131. I think I've got it there on your notes. Also, we know this, that Jesus made it very clear that the whole Bible is about him. John 5:39, Luke 24, 27, verse 44. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The Old Testament predicts our rescuer. The New Testament presents our rescuer. The Bible is not about what we must do to be right with God, but what God has done to make us right with him. That makes all the difference in the world. So, so when we read part of what we're supposed to do, that's not to earn blessing. It's in response to the blessing that we already have in him. So, so it changes our motivation. Our hearts are captivated. They're smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. We're only responding. Makes all the difference in the world. So what is salvation? Here's your salvation. Next point on your notes. Salvation is more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that says, I believe what you have promised and I will do whatever you say. And this is what we see in her life. This is exactly what she does. 
So in verse six, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. She's just like blown away. Verse seven, and he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So salvation here is about learning to so adore God that you would gladly renounce everything you have to follow him. See, that's the essence of salvation. How many have ever seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? Show of hands, okay, God is okay. If, if you have that on your car, go out there right now and rip it off. That is not a good bumper sticker. My uh, neighbor down the street has a bumper sticker and his bumper sticker says, dog is my co-pilot. And he's, he's, an, he's a grouchy old man. That's pr- he's probably mocking Christians because he doesn't want to have anything to do. He's an atheist, doesn't want to have anything to do with any of that stuff. But uh, if God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. <laughs> and when Jesus shows up, he's going to say, you stole my car. Get out of that seat. You see, and, and oftentimes we, as Christians, I mean, we almost look at this Christian life, and it's taught in, in our American culture, oh, just add Jesus almost like an accessory to your car. Put him in the, you know, the passenger seat. Man, that's a bad place for him to be. That's not actually Christianity. God doesn't come as our co-pilot sitting in the passenger seat offering us helpful suggestions on how to avoid traffic jams and fix flat tires, okay? That's not what he does. No, in fact, in fact, listen to me. It's, uh, maybe it didn't surprise you, but uh, who would have ever thought that Carrie Underwood got it right? Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> Sorry. Um. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. I mean, she got it right. Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. There's something to that. When it comes to the lordship of Jesus Christ, there are really only two choices. That's what we're talking about here. So salvation is more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that says, I believe what you have promised, and I will do whatever you say. See, that's lordship. You're not only saving me, you're my Lord. I surrender my life to you. And there's really, when it comes to lordship of Jesus Christ, there are only two choices, surrender or rebellion. Surrender or rebellion. By the way, let me give you some clues of your rebellion and mine too. Here's just a few clues of our rebellion. Do you worry? That's rebellion. How's that? It's because worry is believing that he's going to get it wrong. You're believing it's like, oh, you're going to get this all wrong, God, and I'm really concerned and I'm stressing out right now, but God's not. And and he has this perfect love and infinite wisdom and unlimited power, and he's working all the circumstances in your life for your good and and his glory. He's not going to get it wrong. Oh, by the way, bitterness, bitterness is believing that he he did get it wrong. I'm ticked off. What, 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 what? What are you, are you mad at? You're, you're probably, ultimately, you're mad at God because you think that he did get it wrong. In fact, I was thinking about this, is that if you said to me, I know God cares for me, but I'm still paralyzed with fear, or I'm eaten up with bitterness, or I'm overcome by hopelessness, that means that you don't, you don't really know that God cares for you. You might say, oh, I know God cares for me, and yet you have these in your life. No, 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 you don't know. You don't really know that he cares for you. It's, a, it's maybe clear to the mind. It, it's not real to the heart. So how do we get this down deep into our heart? Here's the next point. Spiritual disciplines increase our capacity to enjoy God and live all of life before the face of God or before the eyes of God. And that's what this Nazarite vow is all about. The Nazarite vow is, uh, is really just a set of spiritual disciplines. And what's crazy about this is that uh, Samson is going to have to practice this Nazarite vow for his whole life. And you're going to see him violate these things like crazy as we head into this study. But uh, Nazarite vow, verses 4 through 5, uh, we saw that. You can read in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. There's three basic stipulations. One is that they couldn't cut their hair. No, not cut hair during the period of the vow. So this uh, Samson probably looked like a combination of Duck Dynasty and ZZ Top. Uh, <laughs> And so, I mean, he's a pretty shaggy looking dude. And then the second thing is not to drink any produce from the vines, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And the third thing is not to have contact with, with any dead, dead body. And it was a sign that you were looking to God with great intensity and focus during a, cru- a crucial time in your life. It was about training 
in becoming more godly. And uh, it's the same reason why we, we do disciplines. I don't know if you do this. I do this from time to time. There's an intense period of time where, where I'll fast or I'll, I'll, I'll study certain topics in the Bible because I'm really struggling in an area of my life. So there's that intensity in my life as it relates to spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, hanging out with other Christians. It might even involve getting counsel, counseling from other Christians, it, whatever it might be. Because you guys all know this, there is a major difference between, between trying to do something and training to do something. Does that make sense? There's a major difference between trying to do something and a training to do something. Have you ever tried to be patient with a child going through their terrible twos? Trying. I'm gonna try. It's not going to work any better than trying to hike Havasupai Falls without training for it. It, it really requires some, some training. Um, by the way, if you try to hike Havasupai Falls with all of us that are gonna be going in October, make sure you train. Because I'm not packing your stuff out, okay? And we're going to call the helicopter to get you. We might even leave you. Okay, we won't, we won't do that. The, the, the leader of that, I'm glad there's a leader and I'm not the leader. I'm just going to, yeah, he's on you. You're going to have to take him out. But, uh, but hey, if you're not training, it's going to kill you. And, and that works a lot in our life. If, you know, you might get all inspired in this study and go, I'm going to be more loving this next week. Woohoo! Good luck. Because you're not going to become more loving or joyful or peaceful by trying harder. That's not the Christian life. But by, by training, by spiritual disciplines, by increasing your capacity through spiritual disciplines to experience that joy in the Lord unlike you've ever experienced it before. See, that's the purpose of, of spiritual disciplines. The key to holiness or wholeness or, or maturity is not, by the way, spiritual disciplines are, are really good things. Sometimes we look at them as they're really bad things, but uh, the key to holiness or wholeness is not denying yourself happiness, but intensifying it and pursuing it through spiritual disciplines in the only one who will give you the deepest and more, most durable happiness, and that's Jesus. That's why we do spiritual disciplines, to increase our happiness in him. See, holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. And spiritual disciplines help us with that. And, um, and okay, let's continue reading. Okay, the story even gets better. Here we go, verses eight through 16. So then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. So you can see immediately what his concern is. Well, yeah, well okay, so if he's gonna be born, so we need to know what to do with this child. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of, the Lord, the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, so by the way, what was she doing sitting in the field? What was she doing out there? Praying, that's a good, good answer. So she's just like sitting in the field. Anybody do that? Just, where's Nancy? She's sitting in the field. <laughs> why is she doing that? I have no idea. Well, I kind of think I know why. She just wants to get away from me, okay? And get closer to Jesus. But, uh, and, and that's probably what, it was, what was going on. She was really seeking God through this. There's this almost kind of this, this uh, isolating herself from all the noise of the world and all that. And so sure enough, man, she has a, this, this angel of the Lord shows up again. The angel of the Lord shows up again as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. No, he's too busy. <laughs> he's too busy with life. So the woman came, uh, ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, uh, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is to be the mission? Notice how he just kind of floods him with a bunch of questions. It's like, so okay, well, so what we, how are we supposed to do this? And what is his mission? And uh, you know, this guy's stressed out, okay? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, all of all that I said to the woman, let, let her be careful. In other words, I've told her everything you need to know. 
I've laid it out for her. She may not eat of anything, so he just repeats what he said before. She cannot eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Mmm, boy, nothing like goat hamburger. Like uh, goat sandwiches, okay? That's, that's what he's saying. Hey, come over to the house. We'll have some goat, goat meat, which is very common these days in those circles. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. Now, this is really peculiar, and I think it's going to tell us a little bit about our redemption. If you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. Check this out in parentheses. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Stop there just for a minute. Let's talk about this because there's some really good insights here. So, here's your first first insight from these verses. There must be atonement for sins to restore our relationship with God. So in verse 16, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering for me. So what, what is that about? We can't have communion with God if we don't have union with him. Does that make sense? Can't have communion. You're going to have enjoy his presence if you're not even, if you're separated from him. And by the way, the Bible tells us very clearly that sin separates us from God. And he, he recognizes this a little bit later on because when he realizes this is God, he tells his wife, we're going to die. We just saw the face of God. We're going to die because he knows that the consequences of sin is death. So we're going to read that in just a moment. I gave you Hebrews 11, uh, chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. And basically what those verses say, let me summarize it. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And in those verses, it tells us that Christ is the ultimate atonement for our sins. Remember, he says, prepare a burnt offering. So these burnt offerings in the Old Testament, all these offerings in the Old Testament are pointing to the ultimate offering, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 3.26, it uses just an absolutely beautiful description of, of Christ, that he is both just and justifier. And we see that in the cross, that he is just, there's that aspect of his nature that demands payment for sins, and yet he's justifier. There's that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification, our reconciliation with him. That's pretty amazing. And we see that those two uh, aspects of his nature take place in the cross, in the cross of Jesus. He's just and he's justifier. And once we have union with God, once that is restored, we can enjoy communion with him 24-7. But you have to first have union with him. And the only way you can have union with him is through the blood of Jesus, through the cross. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out a number of things. One that he said, it is, it is finished. And basically, what does that mean? Anybody? Paid in full. Paid in full. So he paid in full for our forgiveness of sins. He purchased our forgiveness of sin, our ticket to heaven, and everything we'll ever need until he gets us home. Does that make sense? So it's never based on your performance. Your standing with God right now is not based on your performance, regardless of the kind of week you had. You want to make your week better? Come back to the reality that your standing in him is not based on your performance or on your righteousness. It's based on his righteousness for you. And when that gets a hold of your life, it will change the way you begin to live your life. Your sanctification, your wholeness comes out of your justification. You're struggling in your sanctification? Go back to your justification. Go back to that. Go back to the fact it is finished. He's forgiven you of all of your sins. Confess your sins. Let him cleanse you and move on with your life. Not only that, your ticket is ready to go to heaven. So if you take your last breath here, you'll take your first breath with him for all eternity. And in the meantime, you have everything you need in him. Come to him. Run back into his arms regardless of what's going on in your life. That's, that's the point. Now, here's the next point on your notes. 
God is closer than you think and more eager to connect with you than you could imagine, but you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Verse 16, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. This is, I love this. This is like, this is atypical male right here, okay? Just kind of clueless, walking around. I got things to do, people to see, you know, it's just like, I, and, and you'll notice that the, the gal here, uh, Manoah's wife, man, she's more in touch. She's got the sensitivity to more of the voice of the Holy Spirit, and that's actually true. That's actually true. That's true in my life as it relates to my wife. My wife has a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit more so than I. I'm just too busy, too performance-oriented, running here and there. And so you got that idea here. And this reminded me of, uh, how many are familiar with the story of Jacob's ladder? You guys familiar with the story of Jacob's ladder? It's found in Genesis 28. Remember Jacob? Uh, He's on a trip. And it's just some kind of remote place. And he, uh, he lays down. He lays his head on a rock. And uh, if you laid your head on a rock, you'd dream like he was dreaming too, I'm sure. But, and I think it was more than that. But uh, so he has this dream and the angels are, are ascending and descending from the ladder from heaven. And it's fascinating what he says when he wakes up. Genesis 28:16 says, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So here's the deal. I hope that you haven't come in here and you walk out of here and you go, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. You know what I'm saying? How often do we come to church and we just do the check the church box kind of thing or we read our Bible or whatever? God is with us. God is closer than you think and more eager to connect with you than you can imagine, but you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. We did a study a couple years ago. You can still download it if you got the the, uh, DB app or you can go on our website. It was a crazy busy series. And one of the key verses there was uh, Psalm 46.10. You guys familiar with Psalm 46.10? What does Psalm 46.10 say? Anybody? Yell it out to me. Be still and know that I am God. Oh my goodness, I love that verse. That's a great verse. Be still. Hey, 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 hey. Be still. I hope you're being still this summer. You're spending some time and you're getting to know God. In fact, I love the way the message puts it. You guys know how the message puts it? You've heard me quote it a lot. Step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at me, your high God. Oh my goodness, that's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> to just to take time. I mean, when I go on vacation, it's about taking long, loving looks at God. My high God, my high God, yes. I need that, I'm desperate for that. But you gotta t- step out of the traffic, gotta work on that. You guys are familiar with uh, Mary and Martha when they invited Jesus over to their home? What was Martha doing? She was every which way but loose, and she's all over the place, we gotta get this, and we gotta do this, we gotta, <laughs> she's crazy, she's out of control. But Mary, what was Mary doing? Mary was sitting right at the feet of Jesus. Man, she was soaking it up. And so what does Jesus say to Martha? Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, hello Martha. I mean, what would he be saying to you this morning? Jim, Tom, Mary, Nancy, listen to me. He goes, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Step out of the traffic, take a long loving look at me, your high God. Hurry is a pace not conducive for fellowship with God or family or friends or the investment of our lives into anything that really matters. We've got to slow the pace down. And part of this uh, eliminating hurry is just really uh, getting rid of external distractions and also internal offenses. Did you know that if you don't deal with the internal offenses, your heart will become hard over time and you'll be insensitive to the voice of God? That's why the Bible deals with bitterness. So here's the next point. Next point on your notes. Oh, no, 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 no next point. Let's read the verses back to the text because this is where we finish it up. Here we go. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So I mean, he's still just hitting him with uh, questions because he is yet, remember what we read? For Manoah did not know 
that he was the angel of the Lord. And so, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is, ooh, that, that's like, that's circled in my Bible right there, wonderful, my name is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works, this is really rich too, who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Wow, that's crazy. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and what did they do? They fell on their faces to the ground. Now check this, this is, this is kind of, it's, I, I found a little humor in this, but it's like, this is like serious stuff. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And listen to his natural, normal response. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Actually, he said it more like this. We shall surely die <laughs> because he's face down. I just smudged my glasses doing that. So, I mean, they're like this. We shall surely die. What are we going to do? And check this out. This is one great gal. She talks him away from the ledge. I mean, she's going to talk him off the ledge. And listen to what she says. She just levels with him. She says, but his wife said to him, what? If the Lord, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or check this out, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. I'm gonna give birth to a baby, and he's gonna save the nation. He's gonna begin the salvation of this nation. Well, he, would, he would have promised all these things. I mean, I don't know how many times my wife has talked me off the ledge. It's like, we're gonna die! <laughs> she goes, hey, oh, oh, come back, come back, come here, come here, come here, come here. Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, 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 never mind that, we're gonna die! No, 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 no. If God gave his son for us, isn't he gonna take care of everything else? Oh yeah, that's right. And that's what she's doing here. This gives us a really a great understanding of faith. Faith is, it isn't the absence of thinking. See, she's thinking through. See, this is what we need to do. Sometimes when we're kind of in that panic mode, oh, I'm freaking out. Sometimes we need somebody to come alongside of us and say, hey, hey, settle down. Let's walk through the process here. Let's go back to our justification. What did he do for us? Yeah, so, so he's paid it in full. So what does that mean? He's forgiven you of your sins. Okay, yeah, you take it to heaven. Yep, yep, yep. And what about everything in between? Yep, yep, he's got that all covered too. So why are you stressing out? Why don't you rest in him? Learn to trust in him. See, that's what's happening here. See, faith isn't the absence of thinking, but it is thinking and acting on the basis of the word and promises of God. That's why you need to know the promises of God. That's why you keep coming back to the text. Because when all chaos is breaking out in your life, you go back, to, oh, wait, 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 this is what it says. Okay, God, I'm taking it to the bank. I know you're with me, you're for me, you won't leave me. So in verse 24, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him, and then we will continue on <clears throat> in the coming weeks with this. So let's wrap this up. So here we go. I mean, this, this is absolutely the best, the best part of this whole text here. So here's the next point on your notes. God's approval and presence are the greatest treasure and pleasure in the universe. See, that's what they experience. God's, God's approval and presence are the greatest treasure and pleasure in the universe. Did you notice in verse 18, I circled that word wonderful. Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? What, what does that mean? Beyond understanding. Beyond understanding. It is too wonderful for a human to grasp. No thought can contain him. No word can express him. He is beyond anything we could ever dream or imagine. See, that's, that's God. So Manoah 
This points Manoah to God's magnificent glory and breathtaking beauty, verses 19 through 20. Then the Lord himself did an amazing thing. We see this happen, and he thinks he's gonna die. That's based on Exodus 33, 20. No one can see God and live because of our sinfulness, our sinfulness and uh, God's holiness. And then, of course, his wife talks him off of the ledge and, uh, and so this is absolutely beautiful. So l- let me, everybody look up here just for a minute. Uh, think of the best pleasure you've ever had on this planet Earth in creation. That's just a dim glimpse of the pleasure you can find in God. See, that's just a big finger pointing to God. He is the pleasure behind the greatest pleasure you've ever had. He is the glory behind the greatest glory you've ever had. He's the beauty behind all of the beauty on this planet Earth. That beauty is meant to lead your heart to him who's more breathtaking and more beautiful than anything you've ever experienced. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. They're a big finger pointing to God. See, and that's, they have an encounter with the living God. By the way, did you see this sequence now in our story? It's wonderful. The gospel's right here in the Old Testament. It starts with guilt. Do you remember what we first read? They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They've got guilt all over them. He can't sit down and commune with them until they make this sacrifice. So there's, because there's no, there's no union, which ultimately brings communion, but they can't have the communion unless they have the union. And so they've got guilt. And so it goes from guilt to, oh my goodness, to grace, to the gospel, to, what do you hear from her? Gratitude. Gratitude. See, when you understand your dire condition apart from Christ, plus the magnitude of his provision, the cross, then you will have gratitude. See, your gratitude is real small because you're not in touch with your sinfulness and his, uh, his, what he's provided for you through the cross. Uh, whoever's forgiven much does what? Loves much. Whoever's forgiven little loves little. And you're out of touch with how much he has forgiven you. And this is what they begin to experience. And they begin to have this wonderful encounter with him, with the God of the scriptures. And by the way, I gave you a number of verses there. You can study it on your own. Uh, In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore, Psalm 1611. How about this one? Psalm 8410. One day in your courts is better than what? Thousand elsewhere. Think of your best vacation spot. How many have already, already gone on vacation this summer? Okay, wherever you went, I'm sure it was good, but not as good as this right here. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Next point on your notes, we're almost finished. What we need more than anything is not explanation, but greater revelation of who God is and what he has done for us. You'll notice here that uh, Manoah, verse 12, what is to be the child's manner of life? And what is his mission? And what is your name? And I mean, he's just all ready. Oh, I need more questions. I need more answers. I need, I need direction. I need, I need help in all of this. And then in verses 18 through 21, God's answer to Manoah, Manoah's request in essence is you need to know me and my character far more than you need more information. I like what uh, Daniel 11.32 says. It's a great verse I've known for years. And it says, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So there's a, there's a stability in our life and then there's a direction also just in knowing God. See, in our self-help how-to world, we want information, motivation, explanation, but God wants to give us greater revelation of himself. See, all of our problems are due to our low view of God. The reason why I'm overwhelmed by trials is because I, I don't see the greatness of God. The reason why I... I'm easily overtaken by the temptations of life is because I don't, I'm not experiencing the goodness of God. I'm not tasting of his goodness and seeing that he is indeed good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See, becoming a better parent doesn't happen by focusing on parenting techniques as much as, as focusing on how our Father in heaven parents rebels like us. See, becoming a, a, a more generous person doesn't happen by going to seminars on finances, and I'm not against that. We have seminars right here on finances, but it's much more about seeing more clearly the generosity of the Father in giving his son for us. 
Becoming a more loving spouse doesn't happen through marriage seminars as much as experiencing the unconditional spousal love of Christ Jesus for us. Becoming a more contented, courageous, compassionate person doesn't happen by trying harder through formulaic steps from a self-help book, but it comes to those who hang out in the throne room of the powerful and personal creator of the universe. See, it's this encounter with God. It's, that's the best thing about the Christian life. It's the presence of God. It's walking with him. It's enjoying him. See, you gotta know this. I, t- I say this from time to time. Just so that you know, the, the goal of preaching is worship. That's what we do here. It's not, it's not a lecture. Lectures give you information. And you get information, certainly. Nor is it a motivational talk. Motivational talks give you action steps. But a sermon stirs your heart to worship and what happens in the middle of the sermon, there should be something that begins to take place within your heart and you stop saying, oh my God, look at how much I have to do for you and you start saying, oh my God, look at how much you have done for me and you're captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and you're only responding to his extravagant love for you And you're overtaken by that. And then here's the last point. The gospel is doing its work in us when we crave to know God and to see his kingdom advance in our lives, in the lives of others more than anything, more than money or romance or family or health or fame. Why? Because that's more satisfying. Proverbs 24, 25, the woman bore a son. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. So we're gonna take communion this morning. Wow, what a great opportunity just to reflect. What is God speaking to you this morning through this message? So what you can come to one of these stations in just a moment. There's three stations here. And you can see that these are double cupped. So you grab the t- cups together and you've got the bread on the bottom. That represents his broken body. This represents his shed blood, the juice. Now these are for believers, but you can become a believer this morning by Acknowledging your sin, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all your sins and confessing him as Savior and Lord. Doing what we said to say this, I believe what you have promised and I will do what you say and then you can feel free to take communion with us. What I'd ask you to do is pick up the elements, go back to your seat and just sit and reflect just for a few moments and, and respond, respond to his love. Open your heart to experience more of what he has for you this morning. Let me pray. Father God, there's nothing more soul-satisfying and life-liberating than hanging out in your throne room, than knowing you by spending time with you. You've made this possible through the indispensable and costly love of your son on the cross for us. You lost your son so that you could gain us. Your son cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we can cry with confidence, Abba, Father, May the Holy Spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are your beloved children in whom you are greatly pleased. As we take this long, loving look at you, our high God, through these communion elements, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.